Oh, folks, welcome back inside the Parisi Palace at 2919 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, hour number two here, live in the old Pueblo. I sit here today in the studios of Power Talk 1210, totally humbled and awed. Awed by my adherence to the musicians and those who produced it and cultivated the music. Much of the focus of my show, I now realize, is on the ability to have people in a room all at the same time making music. It seems simple, but in these times, it's not. Those who know how to mic a set of Michael Shreve or Billy Kreutzmann drums, being able to remember his name because it's on the inside gatefold, along with about a dozen other heady individualists, hell-bent on creating music. This music comes out of their instruments, but it's the sound of the record that provides space and time displacement. The eerie Jew's harp trying to get traction in the rain. That's where my guest's launching point was, and he has continued into the digital age with timeless artists like David Crosby and new writers of a different age. Larry Graham coming in right on time in the Valley of the Moon. My guest deftly made his way in and around the weeds with Brewer and Shipley carving paths of Kama Sutra while Bill Vitt and John Kahn laid down rhythm tracks or building a custom-designed studio in Bob Weir's Mill Valley home. My guest is not awed by the digital age. In fact, he's thrived in it because of the relationships he's built when music came out of communities. Deeds, not words. Stephen Barncard, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thank you, Jake. Uh, I might ask uh, Oscar to turn the stand up to my end here a little bit higher. I could barely hear you, so I want to make sure I get your questions. Uh, and good afternoon. Well, that's it's an honor to talk to you, and we'll make sure that you can that you can hear me. I, you know, I wanted you to talk. I wanted you to talk a little bit about uh, when you were first coming up as an engineer. Uh, could have been when you were, uh, you know, even before you became a full fledged engineer. But how music really came out of these communals opportunities, and juxtapose that to what is happening in the digital world today. Okay. Well, it was very hard to. Uh, amass any kind of recording equipment that sounded worth anything unless you just put up two mics and uh, I did some live recording like that uh, I, I did have a stereo recorder early in uh, in my uh, experiments with audio but but my first recorder was mono of course it was back in, in 1960 60, uh, 59 or so my dad bought me this really cheap uh, machine but it gave me uh, insight into the theory and so forth. So there was still a lot of setting up and, you know, tape would always run out. So catching the moment would require um, making sure you had money to buy tape or you had a lot of used tape around. And then, of course, you had the, the problems with used tape. But uh, I, I'm, And you want me to compare that to how, it's, how it could happen today. It's so much easier to record. You have infinite recording time and and size really uh, you can record at 192k if you really feel so inclined and mm -hmm. for hours at a time a 64 gig chip on a uh, even simple handheld recorder costs like 35 dollars now so i think i, think I was referring up. you know i was referring more to the idea uh I, I have to tell you it is really such a high honor to to talk to you because one of the albums that i've just been ch that has been channeling me uh, on this on this journey has been uh, if I could only remember my name and it has to do with the ambient the sound of that album and, and when you look at I, I the, before the new year I looked at all the guys on that album and I said okay I've already gotten to Yorma 
uh, and there's, I, I know I'm missing somebody else, but then I, I was like, I got to Shreve and I did never expect it to get to you, man. But I said, that's a community. They were a community of musicians that made music together. That's more what I'm getting at is that you okay. hear the warmth in that record, man. That record is, I'm, and I don't know, take me through that record. I mean, is it, cause it, it was, it a, is it a fantasy or is, was everybody in there? I know everybody wasn't all the tracks together, but everybody was generally there supporting each other, and that's the communal music I was talking about. Well, I, I guess my main um, my main takeaway from those sessions was that it was the lack of pretense. Uh, David had just finished uh, a big hit, the CSNY album. He was over his uh, his sorrow at the losing of his uh, his girlfriend. And uh, and probably future wife because she was the one, uh, Christine. Uh, but he had this whole bag of songs that the other bands rejected or weren't just right for that or incomplete in various stages. So he sat down and just bought studio time with no agenda. You know, uh, seven to eleven every night, uh, no all nighters. He had had enough of that with. CSNY and Stills going on and on and on, uh, and and so it's so the so the, the he set the stage. David, first of all, is probably one of the greatest producers of this kind of music because he 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 he's an artist, you know, uh, himself, and been in the studio a lot, and he knows how to make people feel comfortable, and he knows when they've hit their performance peak which sometimes the first or second take, and sometimes, oh, i got to do another one, and say, nope, stop, you know, and he did that. He did that a lot. Uh, so so this was a very David-centered record, and, he, and everybody came. And there was no call for players because all these sessions were going on at the same time. This is something that can't happen anymore with home studios is that there was um, a lot of uh, activity with, three different full-size tracking rooms in the middle of San Francisco with the first professional uh, and major league studio in, in San Francisco uh, starting in, in 1969 and going on to, and still that place exists today, believe it or not. I just did a project last year wow. in those same rooms, which have not changed. You know, there it's, there's a, uh, there's, there's a bit of magic in the studio itself, just the size of the room and so forth. But, but the fact that all those people were there and could walk in, and they were friends of David already, and uh, I think Garcia was in uh, another room doing, starting his solo album, and of course the Jefferson Starship had a, a long-term deal. I think they bought a year at a time. They bought out Studio A, locked it out, because they didn't want any more interruptions. Because uh, at the time, most of the studio time was booked. If you didn't lock it, you know, there were no lockouts. Right. People didn't usually do that. And so the air, you know, airplane had a all-you-could-eat kind of uh, uh, deal in their contract where they could have as much studio time. I don't think they really looked at the bottom line how that worked out later, but but they were said, take as much time as you want, and that what eventually extended into Grunt Records and their own label and so forth. Talking to Stephen, uh, Stephen, I wanted to ask you, as it relates to that album, the, the track we fused into this interview was... Um, Tam Tam Mount Tamapai High, and uh, right. and um, can you like? There are so many intricate songs, laughing, uh, traction in the rain with that beautiful harp. I, can you talk about your major? Did you have ideas for that album? And more broadly, are do you consider yourself a good problem solver? 
Well, on that album, uh, the forces of good was with me somehow. <laughs> I, you know, uh, yeah, actually, I did not want to do that record at first. When David called me, uh, I said, I, I don't want to do it. I tell him to go away. Uh, because during uh, uh, Deja Vu, uh, he was incredibly rude to me and, uh, and put me down because I was insistent, kind of an underling thing. And it, was, it wasn't personal, really. It was just he was lashing out. So, and I'd always wanted to record David. I mean, I loved him when he did the weird stuff in The Birds and so forth. But, sure. he, but he, uh, he continued to call me. He insisted, you know. And said, you know, he said, I'll make it worth your while, was his hope. <laughs> So I said, oh, okay, I'll do it. And, you know, um, my girlfriend was kind of wary of him, you know, because he did have the roving eye, and he, you know, some girls, you know, just fall madly in love with him, and, and many girls that down-to-earth ladies are, are pretty suspicious. He is. <laughs> He's got that roving eye, you know. It's David, you know. Uh, but but he was, he must have talked to Jerry or, or someone because uh, in the bed because he wanted me he must have liked American Beauty the way it sounded and, and it was a we can talk about that later on it's a, it was an acoustic guitar festival and acoustic guitars have been kind of my holy grail up until that point anyway I never found anybody too many people that could really play acoustic guitar anywhere had good sounding guitars until I ran into this cat named in Kansas City back before I left her the coast, his name was Chet Nichols. He was a troubadour of the first sort, very much like Crosby. Uh, I would call him sort of a male representation of the Joni Mitchell town. He had, but also with guitar skills like John Fahey, wow. you know, wow. uh, I mean, he had this multiple picking style that sounded like three people playing. Unbelievable. So he had these beautiful guild guitars, and uh, uh, so that gave me, an, uh, because I did that record for Chet Nichols on spec, about three months or so before Crosby's record, I had an experimentation platform to try out different miking techniques, and so uh, stereo miking on guitar, on acoustic guitars, which I always wanted to do. I never had enough good microphones to do it before. And here I had 16 tracks, a singer, you know, I did stereo vocals, everything, and got to experiment and got all that stuff out of the way so that when I got to Crosby, I not only had uh, a, a more focused idea about what to do, uh, uh, how to record an acoustic guitar, uh, I also had an idea about the uh, social skills necessary to get people to, to produce people, to, you know, get them on to the next step. And, right problem solve, as you say, to get uh, to the next stage of the recording. So Chuck helped me immensely. Uh, I'm, I'm helping him, actually, uh, remixing that first record because I made a lot of mistakes. So I, I feel like I owe it to the guy to, to, to redo those, uh, those mixes. Uh, and I have the basic track. I'm fortunate enough to have the, you know, the multi-tracks to do that. It, uh, I mean, but it, that record yeah. was just fantastic. It was a learning experience as well as uh, absolute joy. Every night brought a surprise. You never knew who was going to walk in. Uh, one night we had, uh, I think Bernie Krause walked in with a bunch of synthesizers stuff and uh, used two techs and set up this machine that was supposed to track Crosby's voice and it never worked. But, you know, Crosby wanted to, he liked gadgets, you know, and that's like McGrim did. So. <sighs> this is just fantastic. Uh, you know, I wanted to go back a little before your, uh, when you were, is it, I, I read somewhere that you were, uh, you you assisted on uh, uh, Wars Wars first album is that right? 
Mm-hmm. And can you talk about that experience? I mean, early on, I, I love part of my show is just sort of, you know, I don't want to say it's a before you were famous kind of thing, but it's the idea of saying before you really trusted your gut, before you knew exactly who you were, uh, one of these early sessions when you were an assistant, when you, uh, you know, you went with your gut, you made a right suggestion, a right call that, that ended a blockage, allowed things to flow and really put you on the course that where you are, that where you wound up today. Um, I was a real good assistant. I, I had also fortunate to have to, to assist some really heavy, heavy dudes like Bill Halverson, like uh, Glenn Johns, uh, right. uh, like Chris Huston uh, on on the war sessions. Now, Jerry Goldstein is uh, is I don't know if you've uh, he, he would be a great. I need him. He, I didn't. He he was a hand clapper during some Tim Buckley sessions. I think he he's been everywhere. He was a Bill <laughs> Building original. He was a Padusa. He was one of those guys, and he's still around. Oh. You know, he's been in kind of like the dark side of the music business sometimes, and I don't, I don't know. I don't want to say anything. It's but, all good. You know, some of those sort of paychecks arrived late and so <laughs> forth. But, you know, but he's such a funny, engaging, wonderful guy. You can take it. You can love it because he is, he is, uh, he represents kind of like one of the last of the old school guys. And uh, so, so he, uh, he uh, was probably knew Wally for years, and he booked some time on a weekend in 1970, uh, and you know, Wally wanted to get people up to this new studio up there, so he made them. T- I think it was 50 bucks an hour or something ridiculous, and because the going rate was 125 an hour for years. Um, and he brought hit Chris Huston, uh, who, who was another great interview you must do sometime. He was the uh, he was in the uh, Undertakers at one time, more famous than the Beatles, and then he worked for Atlantic Records mm. and uh, Vanilla Fudge and so forth. Anyway, great engineer. He's now a sound uh, design, uh, room design guy. And he was the engineer, and the whole band, they were rehearsed to the teeth. It was unbelievable. <laughs> if you want to give an example of the muse working so well, these guys must have been on a club for a week or two weeks or something just working on the tunes because almost every tape on that record was first or second tape and live vocals now just imagine spill the wine uh eric burden in the booth uh tripping his brain out on lb doing that whole rap you know long hair evil third gnome bit and that, <laughs> yeah, you right, know, right, right. <laughs> bunch of naked girls it was um, you know, and it just there was a room. It was, the room was dark. You couldn't see him. You could just hear it, and it was the record, except for a couple of flute overdubs punched in. It was the record. <laughs> there was so much energy live recording, and when you can nail it like that, and that whole record was like that. It was just bursting with energy. I had some rough mixes that I kept around just to prove that I wasn't dreaming this. You know, it was. Uh, they were such a tightly uh, rehearsed and and ready, and you know, every member was uh, was right there, and they, they nobody left the building. You know, it was just every take was uh, it was an overdub city, uh, which I think is something that kills music, quite frankly. Why? Have why? Why do you that. why do you say that? Uh, why does over why do overdubs kill music? Mm-hmm. Uh, because they're not connected to the mainstream of the event of the original tracking. So the closer you can get to that original event in time, uh, and you're not phoning in your part, 
And, you know, I mean, certainly on, on David's record, there was a lot of overdubs. He was doing a lot of stuff himself, which was the only way to do it. But, you know, and we're basically in Les Paul mode here. <laughs> but, but, but when you have a band like that that's ready to play, right. and, and David will admit, admit to this, too, because on Deja Vu, uh, he performed Almost Cut My Hair. And that was 100% live. 100%. It was, you know, my drop-dead moment in those, in those sections, actually, because he just nailed it. And he did the same thing with Cowboy Movie in, in his solo record. Uh, that live energy is something that, that David loves to harness. And he's not doing it so much today. I mean, his, his recent record's great. Uh, but I can hear the timeline. I, you know, the click track is another thing I think that kills music. And, and it's very convenient for everybody to drop in and you see your measures right there, you know, right where to punch in. It's at, oh, much easier for everybody. But I'm telling you, that is, it's not analog versus digital, folks. It's, it's, the, it's the pretense and it's the situation and, and how things go down. You know, a bunch of humans playing together in a space is far different um, than, uh, you know, I try to tear down those walls all the time. Uh, I have a home studio, but I don't have a window glass, so, you know, I have to put up a, a video link so I can see them. But that helps so much. The communication uh, speeds things along and just gets a better record made uh, when... Uh, on on David's record, uh, if I could only remember my name, uh, there were no baffles. I didn't use baffles. I didn't I didn't have isolation for everyone. So uh, everybody played dynamically. Bill Kreutzmann is one of the greatest drummers for that. He's uh, he was he was really good with that on uh, American Beauty as well. That you could play the dynamics, so the acoustics had the space to. Uh, um, to, to actually work in the room, and just everybody did have headphones, and uh, it just worked. I, I just, uh, can you talk, talk about playing to the dynamics? Uh, as a non-musician, this is exactly what I'm trying to get to. I hear it. Mm -hmm. uh, Kreutzmann exemplifies it on both American Beauty, but can you talk about it to the non-musician out there? Because it's, it, this is essential. Okay. Uh, well, um, the um, dynamics are... Are, are what the highs and lows in music, and even in rock music, there can be highs and lows, uh, and and every every instrument has its space. Acoustic guitar is a quiet instrument. Drums are generally loud instruments, depending on who's playing and how they're playing. You can play quietly on drums because that's happened in jazz for years. Mm -hmm. Jazz combos exist. The bass is right there. So people that have had education in in percussion don't have to play loud to get their sounds because they're playing with brushes or they're doing something else. And Bill found a way to work around the acoustics and fit the dynamic of the instrument in, in real space. You could put the drums in a booth and he could be going around and hitting the toms and making all kinds of noise uh, and, and it wouldn't leak into the guitars. But then is he playing in the proper dynamic space to fit the guitars? When you put it back together to mix, then you found you have to compress it and you have to do all this stuff to to make the, those drums fit. When in, he's playing in the room, then it's automatically mm. and same for vocals done in the room. The the dynamics just work, and mixing becomes almost a ruler mix if you've got your levels set up. You can just put your faders up in a row, and uh, Al Schmidt will tell you this. I think he, that's what he likes to get achieve is pretty much a ruler mix. 
uh, you know, when you're, you get your faders lined up, and then you let the music, you know, people who have to ride the fader all the time on different things, and uh, it's either because the stuff is overdubbed and the dynamic space is lost among the tracks because they're from a different time and the headphone mix is different, or um, you know, or, or they have to because uh, because it wasn't recorded properly. One of the two. If it was live and it wasn't recorded properly, the levels are all over the place. That's one thing. But overdubbing puts puts the music in, you know, and, and sometimes people would compress the signal going to tape to get a better, low, lower noise and to get kind of a sound, but that affects the vocal. And, the, and even the headphone mix is incredibly, you know, when you put yourself in a recording situation where the, uh, you have to wear headphones for somebody's in isolation where it's an acoustic, you can't hear it, you've got to hear the attack. Um, you, you got it when you do overdubs at different times, you've got to make sure you get the headphone mix kind of the same or the playing is going to be different. And the headphone mix for a singer is super critical uh, by the, how much they hear of themselves in the phone. You can make them sharp or flat just from the headphone mix. I can dial it in. Mm -hmm. I can say, you know, I don't even have to tell them they're sharp or flat. I'll know they're good singers. I know what they're hearing. So, you know, it's stuff like that. Uh, but dynamics are, are it. It's what it's what's missing from modern music when they crush the peaks in the so-called hyper-compression loudness wars. Uh, you hear a Madonna brilliant. record yeah. today or Beyonce, you know, there are no there are no dynamics. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, and you listen to a kind of blue dynamics. Uh, now huh. rock and roll, you know, you can still have dynamics and and. So that's what I tried to, to build in David's record. Not try, it's just the music demanded it, that it had those dynamics. And, and I think that's what creates the space and makes people like that record. Well, let's, let's take a listen to this piece of music. We'll uh, investigate the dynamics, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Mr. Barncard, what do you got for us there, brother? Good choice. That is, uh, I'm so glad you played that. Um, that is my favorite cut on there, uh, on, uh, on Down Home by uh, Seals and Crofts. And uh, I, uh, I actually listened to it recently, and I said, 
whoa, did I really push the lead guitar on that. John Hall is just blazing, blazing out of that. Now, this is another example of guys playing live together in a room. I didn't even have a booth to use for this one. Uh, this was Studio D at Hyder's in, in San Francisco. And John Simon, bless his art, and one of the great, great producers always did his stuff live with an 8-track. Uh, the first three band records uh, were done in home studios with 8-tracks and equipment brought in. And uh, so he was he was definitely loved the 8-track format. He, uh, both he and David Briggs actually loved 8-track. And when I started this Seals and Cross session, it was going to 8-track and... Uh, the, the guy that was doing the sessions just got overwhelmed. Uh, his name is Marty Cohn, a great A&R dude. Mm -hmm. uh, Warner Brothers, you may have heard of him. Uh, brother of Bruce Cohn, uh, manager of the Doobie Brothers, who also turned me on to the Doobie Brothers project. And a uh, great guy. And uh, uh, loved him for years. He really was kind of like my mentor. He really was the guy that turned me on to a lot of things. And he couldn't handle it, so he brought me in and introduced me to John Simon, and then John Simon got enough confidence in me that he was able to go out and play piano, which, uh, you know, graced that record all over the place with Gabriel and a bunch of other tunes. He's, he's fantastic. I mean, I just, if I, I just wanted to, uh, I had, a, I, John and I did an incredible interview that I'll send you. I mean, what a, just to know that I've sort of settled into this area philosophically of people that I can connect with and they can articulate this kind of stuff. Um, I mean, it's very important because what you're trying to say is like, a lot of cats talk to me about Elvin Jones. You know, Joan, Elvin played brushes all night if he wanted. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, just play brushes and be happy doing that. Like, and you're talking about dynamics. You know, this was mm -hmm. this is what you call. You look up on Wikipedia, Seals and Cross, pop rock, soft rock. I mean, th there are dynamics and nuances and nice aesthetics that made the rock music flow, and that's gone now. That you don't hear, th and that's just the ability to have individual people come in, whether it's using African percussion, John Simon on, you know on that art, whatever he was playing, that organ or piano, uh, it, you know, it, you, you have been part of just, you were part of the most magical period of spontaneous music that ultimately got put onto record. And I wonder when you, if you could talk a little bit about the first time when you sort of said, Hmm, this is the, this is a trend. I don't like this trend. It's not healthy for holistic music. Mm, okay. Um, well, I've been working with really good cats and studio musicians and the section. All those guys are all my friends, man. Mm. I, I, you've interviewed them all now, and uh, I just I just reunited with uh, Danny uh, at an A and M reunion. Uh, awesome. I was going. It was he, he's such a great guy. I haven't gotten to Durgy. Um, I haven't gotten to Durgy yet, though. I will though. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, Craig's, yeah. Craig's got his own story. So <laughs> ask him about the helicopter trip. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I, uh, I think I, I think it all kind of came to a head when I when I arrived uh, at I, I worked at uh, Village Recorders in, in West LA a couple of times. And when I first came to California, and then later in 1975 when I returned to LA, and uh, uh, I had started as a staff member. I was getting 250 a week, a big big cut in pay, <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, Supertramp was in there. And they're getting ready to cut Breakfast in America, and they were in Studio A in the back, in the Steely Dan room, and um, and I was told that they had been working on the snare drum sound for three weeks, and I'm going, why? That is incredibly indulgent. Uh, 
so I think that was the beginning where I said, hold on here, this is ridiculous. And then I went on to do all the Cosby Nash records, were mostly live tracking and, and you know, then months of overdub vocals, because those vocals were worked out in the studio and, and complex, and it was, that was a whole other kind of level of, of thing, but, uh, you know, that wasn't what I was talking about. It was the kind of lunacy, almost designed to just eat up studio time. Right. Studios right. right. Indulgence. This is uh, very important. I, I was sickened by it, you know, and the budget, and when I worked for Electra eventually, I would see these $200,000 budgets as routine. And I never spent $200,000 on any record except maybe the Crosby and Nash ones. But, you know, uh, they, they earned the right to be indulgent, but these were new bands, like, uh, you know, the ones that they just recently signed that nobody ever heard of were getting one fifty, two hundred thousand dollars with strange entries for forty thousand dollars for food and quote unquote and uh, you know it, it was it was sickening it was very that was really when it hit me as being mm-hmm. in our guy and actually looking at the spreadsheets of what, what things were costing and what was coming out of, the, of those sessions but I would say that was that was the beginning when it really hit me. And then the indulgence of the Grateful Dead were beginning uh, in the uh, in the blues for Allah, um, but they again still tried. You know, they were still their their main thing was live. So right. I think they had tried to attain that. It was it was harder in a small room, and Weir Studio had its problems. It really wasn't built for a big band. It was supposed to be a rehearsal place. You know, it was, we're we're only doing part one here with with a heavy heavy individual, and I'm just so. Uh, you know, I just but just focusing on that point, as a even though you were an engineer and you were helping to facilitate the music, by giving all the musicians, especially unknown quantity, you know, people that were unknowns, how do you think it affected the musician? Because to me, if you're working on a snare drum part for three weeks, you're you're going after some kind of perfection that is absolutely unattainable. I don't even know what that term is. But how did it affect the musician by giving them that kind of unneeded time? You know, I, I think I think some some good drummers don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. That sounds like amateur night to right, me. A, right. a drummer that's never happy with his drum sound because he doesn't know how to tune his drums. You get guys like Keltner or, or you know, or Russell. They just walk in and their drums are ready. You know, they're tuned. They're he's ready to go. Uh, uh, there's, you know, so there was a disconnect between the, you know, the band guys who got the right to play drums because they were in the band, and then, you know, there was more muscle flexing, I think, with the band thing as the 70s wore on, uh, and less substitutions of, of studio drummers, and perhaps that was part of it, but... Uh, uh, I don't. Am I off topic here? I'm no, you're. Do, I, I mean, you're. You're, you're, you're waxing poet. No, let, let's just. But, <laughs> as we wrap here, talk about uh, this a, a current project you're working on. Okay, um, I just finished this uh, it, it, over uh, a month here. This uh, because we were we were working remotely. This band called uh, from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, called Dead Horses. A bunch of really sweet people from really uh, young, you know, like 21, 23, uh, badass uh, bluegrass players um, from Heartland. And um, wow. they saved up their money, and, and they wanted me, and, and they wanted to work at Hyde Street, which was the former Wally Hyders, where I did all those records. And so they enlisted the help of... Uh, 
uh, Jack Kurtzman, who was an engineer there, who called me and brought me into the project, and uh, it was sheer joy. We didn't get, we didn't get enough time for the tracking, but in three days we laid down all the tracks, got all the vocals, uh, maybe by six days, I guess, for the rest of the vocals. And then they went back to Wisconsin, and then Jack and I mixed it, and, and we did the whole thing using Facebook and uh, the net and the special players I made up and my streaming uh, feature, which I'll tell you about someday. Uh, I can yeah. stream the mix directly to the clients and so on. Well, Stephen, so, I, wanna, uh, I mean, no, we, we, we're, we're running out. I'm going to reach out to you, and we'll get to part two. I just I, I want to thank you for this is absolutely essential for younger generations, man. So I'll talk to you really soon. Thank you so much, man. Thank you, Jake. Talk to you soon. We'll see you next week. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Peace. Forty-six. While number nine Kansas is about to polish off Kansas State. Down the corner to Selden. He'll drive, shoot, and miss. But tip in his own miss. What an athletic play by 